um, arose from an engagement with the I Ching. I don't know if you're familiar with the I Ching, but it's a, a, a Chinese book of fortune telling divination, but also source of traditional wisdom. Um, it's often translated as the Book of Changes. But Paul's Book of Changes also came out of a time of loss and change in his own life. In his int introduction to the book, he wrote, when all the questions had been asked, there was nothing to do but listen. Then the speech of the oracle, he's not saying this, I then the speech of the oracle will be whatever comes next. For this book, Naylor chose to listen in a sequence of six-line poems loosely based on the I Ching's hexagrams. The result is a series of quick, vivid poems which seem miraculously, if only momentarily balanced, moments of focus in time's flux. Yunte Huang has called Book of Changes a close listening across time for echoes bouncing off the ancient strings of hexagrams cosmic whispers audible in a modern-day poet's life. <coughs> and then Hank Glazer, I might start by, I am starting by saying, <coughs> Hank Glazer is an associate provost for academic affairs and professor of English at the University of Alabama, where he is also executive director for Creative Campus, and where he edits the modern and contemporary poetic series for the University of Alabama Press. So, he's a busy guy. And he is also arguably the Academy's coolest provost. Hank is the author of 17 books of poetry, 17, including Portions from Lavender Ink, The New Spirit from Singing Horse Press, and Elegies and Vacations, I love that title, published by Saul. His most recent book, In 18, was published last year by Singing Horse Press. He is also the author of three critical books, Opposing Poetry, Volumes 1 and 2 from Northwestern, and Lyric and Spirit out of 2008 from Omnidon. Some years back, he wrote an article about my work entitled The Lyricism of the Swerve. I only mention that, I only mention that because in his latest project, The Notebooks, his own work has begun to swerve and swing more literally and more radically than anyone could have imagined. This work is an experiment in what Hank calls improvisational shape writing. Laser fills unlined notebook pages, as I think you will see, with handwritten lines of poetry, trails that circle, cross, and recross. Some of these pages are reproduced in his most recent book, In 18. To read this work, we must abandon the usual readerly position above the page and become a traveler on its physical landscape. Scale changes accordingly. Poet Fanny Howe has said that this work is improvised in the thrall of jazz, orally within, which leads to an attention to spheres unmeasurable, the spiral and the string. So please welcome, first Paul, and then Hank. nice to come out of hiding. <laughs> San Diego is a good place to hide in. Yeah. Um, I want to read tonight from a book that I just finished writing last week, so it's still very, very fresh, um, and I'm still interested in it, and I'm not sure exactly how to read it yet, so this is this is the world premiere. 
volunteers. Um, the book is called Luminous Roots, and I, if I was to say what it's about, is Ray said I'm, I'm interested in certain kinds of spirituality, and it's definitely a book about belief, but it's it's about the stories, different kinds of stories we tell ourselves to help us get through the day, understand our life, and those can be political or philosophical or religious or or you know economic, any of those things, and. I've always been interested in the difference between what I would call enabling and disabling fictions. I mean, certain of the stories we tell really help us out, and others don't. They harm us in certain ways. And so I was interested in exploring some of those. Um, the term luminous ruse, um, what it means to me is it's, it's kind of my translation of a Buddhist term in the Sanskrit called upaya. And that term comes up a number of times. That's why we bring it up. And upaya is usually translated as skillful means or expedient means. And it's a, it's a term they use in sort of later Buddhism to talk about some of the stories that the Buddha told to convince people to change their lives. And he admitted that they weren't true, but he had to tell them these kinds of ruses, as I call them, in order to get them to change their lives. So I'm sort of interested in those kinds of things. So upaya is an important word. The other um, Buddhist term that's important here is the, the term skanda and that's loosely translated as heap or bundle, and it's the Buddhist term for the self. Believe that the Buddhists believe that the self is actually five different aggregates that swerve in and out of each other. There's no central self in there. And so this is, a lot of these stories explore notions of the self, and particularly from a Buddhist point of view. Um, the form of the book is, is I, hope, I hope this book represents the uh, the apogee of my anality is the best phrase I could come up with. Uh, I decided exactly how many words would be in the book before I wrote it. I decided how many lines, how many poems, and how many sections would be in, in there. And then I, I went from there. So it's, it's based around um, multiples of nine. So there are 18 sections in the book, and each section has nine poems, and each poem has nine lines in it. And the difference between the sections is that the first section has one word per line, the second section has two words per line, all the way up to nine words per line, and then it goes back down again. So it kind of, I had this idea of it being like a breath, an inhale and an exhale, in a certain way, is the shape of the book. So the, the reason I did that was not just to be anal, but I was, I was really interested in experimenting with line length. What happens when you have a different line? So the, the real idea was not just to have this word count at each point, but to really try to see what's the difference between a line that has nine words in it, and what's the difference between a line that has one word in it. What can you do with those things and, and try to make them legitimate lines? So that would be the, the formal notion behind this book. I'm going to read the first six sections. So the first section will have one line and on from that. What else do I want to tell you? Oh, um, one of the, the, the ruses, maybe the, the disabling fictions that I deal with in here. I was, I was raised in Utah, or as we, we like to call it, behind the Zion Curtain. Um, I, was, I was raised a Mormon, but I left the church at 12. So that, that pops up in here in a number of probably sarcastic ways. There aren't believers present that can be bothered by that. Um, the other thing is my, my, uh, my daughter pops up in these poems, and she's over there doing some coloring over there. Um, I wrote a lot of poems about her in this process. Um, she was four years old when I started writing the book, and she's six and three quarters now. Is that correct? Yes. So... This is, some questions pop up from her from an earlier point in her life. Okay. Luminous Ruse. Um, there's an epigraph from the Buddha, and I thought I would read that because I think it, it provides a good idea of what um, upaya means. 
Um, it starts with the term bhikkhus. It's just the Pali term for monks. So he's addressing the Buddha, he's addressing the monks. Bhikkhus, suppose a man in the course of a journey saw a great expanse of water whose near shore was dangerous and fearful and whose further shore was safe and free from fear, but there was no ferry boat or bridge going to the far shore. Then he thought, suppose I collect grass, twigs, branches, and leaves and bind them together into a raft and supported by the raft, and making an effort with my hands and feet, I got safely to the far shore. And then the man collected grass, twigs, branches, and leaves, and bound them together into a raft, and supported by the raft, and making an effort with his hands and feet, he got safely across to the far shore. Then when he got across and had arrived at the far shore, he might think thus, this raft has been very helpful to me, since supported by it, and making an effort with my hands and feet, I got safely to the far shore. Suppose I were to hoist it on my head or load it on my shoulder and then go where, wherever I want. Now, Bikus, what do you think? By doing so, would that man be doing what he should be what should be done with the raft? So I think the Buddhist image is the, the raft is one of these expedient means. Once you're once you've done it, get rid of it. Another example of I think of um, Upaya would be the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein. He talked about in the end of his book, The Tractatus, he says. Think of these propositions as like a ladder. Once you climb up, throw the ladder away. Okay, so that, that's probably some of the background. Section one. So these are one, one word lines. Facing west, thinking east, one shore to the other. By what means? Upaya, expedient means, figure, beings, dream. Talk back to the past. Attack each seized belief. In these stories I tell myself, who plays me? Buddhists believe I refers to a thicket of twigs. A voice between I and it. The middle one? At the heart of things, A is not a. Breathe in, then outside becomes in. Breathe out. Which wave did I hear pulsing as ocean's tongue? Second section. So two word lines. I get expansive here. To begin with form, feeling, perception, inclination, discernment, as five vines entwine, words reach these limits, skandhas create. Daddy, Sienna asks, is Cinderella in this world? No, I hesitate to say yes, she is a cartoon. Framed by God early on, he helped Angel Moroni atop Disney's castle, horn in hand, so much blown gold. Scandalon, a stick that sets the trap, a snare, a stumbling block, where the bait is placed for prey. In Utah, God is a white man in a dark blue suit. When he speaks, watch your wallet. <laughs> Each word, stacked granite cairns marking an alpine trail I've never hiked. Expedient means, 
leading to what end? A sutra of five needle-like leaves and basal sheaths, about 2,000 Tory pines left to read. She's four now. At what age will grist, grist from Capitol's mill be the last meal she asked for? These stories, rafts I use or amused by, this glyph thicket I wake from takes me in. Section three. Book that pulsates like a breath. Short lines lead to long lines and back again as inhale leads to exhale. Empty to full, then empty again. Upaya, expedient means. Do they lead to another shore? Those enabling illusions handed down from more than one to many ways to say it. Buddha's luminous roots. In San Diego, our local developer, Faust and Sons, owns all the military doesn't. Save this sliver of land, Tory Pines hides what isn't up for bid. Mischief makes her my daughter, laugh of my life, looks back through her smile like mine, wild child at four, so much to love this Valentine's Day. A rivulet splits Broken Hill Trail. For those of you locals, there's a lot of, in here about Torrey Pines trails that you walk on, Broken Hill stuff, I love that place. A rivulet splits Broken Hill Trail, quote, not two and not one, end quote. Suzuki said, a smile hidden in print, Hesitant to step on either side, the choice remains. Seized belief at 12. Set aside a tale no one should sell. Indians as Israelites? Garden of Eden in Jackson, Missouri? Who could buy that necromancer's grift? In the dream, purling down from Mill Creek Canyon to the suburbs and patios, I, patio I slept summers on, a cool breeze speaks in the middle voice. What is wind when it isn't blowing? Rain when it isn't raining? And what of that it in it is raining? What is being left to itself? What stories will I tell Sienna? God's bitten apple? Thing that thinks? Commodities bright disguise? No. How about Buddha's other shore and the raft best left behind? Section four. This room's so much nicer than the other one. You can actually see people. You know, in the other room, you come in there, you'd be blinded by light, and you didn't even know if anybody's out there. Like we didn't do so. <laughs> Section four, so forward lines. Once upon a you, we began. Nothing was, now all is, once upon a we replied. To whom is she addressed? The whole heap of us, sequestered in me, to be made new as you are. Strapped in the back seat of our Xterra, Sienna, Sienna asks, is now the present? It was once, but now it's the past we think back on. 
how quickly it winds vines of words can't keep track. No thinker, but thinking. How five skandhas mimic a me. That isn't quite the right word. Neither is I. Skanda, a heap, a pile, or a tree's trunk, the roots of which entangle me in delusion. What reasons do I have to hope she fails to say yes to the contradictions capital makes us out of or us out of? Does anyone know if we are the eggs to the market's chicken? Broken spokes, a child's bike tipped over, wheels spin out this quizzical matter of what, has, what hasn't been told, a tail of a spinning wheel spindle she mustn't touch for fear of sleep no kiss can defeat. Little Sleeping Beauty point. In San Diego, seasons bleed into each other. Spring now. A few Indian paintbrushes bloom along Flat Rock Trail. Torrey pines grow bent by a wind sutra. I'd like to read what the sky wrote. Terrine thinking. Not, I am thinking, therefore, it is what is thought forgot its origin. In tide pools, near cliffs like these, we walk beneath, thinking three things come to mind. Sutured world, broken oak, and ash. Who speaks of contradiction's core as truth taken against its own law? How can A at once be not A? How can one say what can't be said in a way that obviates its own desire? Daddy, I'm always thinking. Me too, little one. It's how we are. And if I knew the quiet mind some know, so rare, I'd tell her a story, she asks, of a princess and a frog. Section 5. Hide nothing in words, free of deceit. We speak of time without saying, don't miss its passing. Each day find a frog to kiss, become someone else. Each day ask what I can't answer. She knows the story. Some days crows come for our fids. No lotus in this point, no leaves from a banyan tree, the roots of which strangle the one they grew from. Five roots of delusion presume a world in and outside the mind they form an aggregate of. Cliff thick behind each eye still life. Nietzsche saved me from Jesus after Jesus saved me from Joseph Smith who saved me from nothing but the irreverence I didn't want to be saved from anything except all those meetings I went to where other meetings I should be quiet in were announced. And Buddha saved me from the oblivion of being helpless without belief, without the frame I was born in, seized hold of, if not broken. Quote, the being doesn't exist who is rescued by the Buddha, end quote. If there's nothing to lose, then there's nothing to save. At sunset, at sunset, huge perigee moon, the largest in 18 years, 
Why does it seem to shrink as it rises from the horizon? The mind tells the eye what it wants to see. These illusions we live by are all they seem to be, the unforeseeable. Nothing but upaya. These poems expose an eye that isn't a noun, but a verb, to become, itself an instance of upaya. A ruse illuminating the instant, word and reason prove too slow to see, each line as equivocal assent to the conventions of is. Where is the bait place? Beings dream. Rivulets run west, cut trail from Broken Hill down to Flat Rock. Wide beach at low tide. Three men fishing. Lines out to sea. One of its tongues wonders, what baits the hook of this habit I am? What cuts through illusion? Stars unseen, blanked by city lights. So many more to see beyond their reach. Lights at night hide the shine of absence stars are, time's ruse, both there and not there. This sacred lack of symmetry, not two and not one. On YouTube, five Chinese monks chant the Heart Sutra. What's come from India, China, Japan, to be in America what I read of. Change passed on from time to time. I hear in words I don't know. The voice of life pulse in another's tongue. S section six, this is the last section I'll read, so six word lines. The first line is the Sanskrit last line of the Heart Sutra, which is what many Zen monks chant. Gata, gata, paragata, parasangata, bodhisva, quote, Gone, gone, gone beyond, all gone to the other shore. The light? End quote. Will I, will I tell Sienna this story? Not an end to begin with the closing mantra. Where is beyond? Why does it drive, drive us, this impulse for elsewhere? Desires drift to the next, and its end? It was always he they spoke of. A good man become God. His wife, one of many enablers, over the eons the story's flux became fixed. Then rules stepped in. At 12, in cinder block buildings, with Jesus and Joseph Smith up on a flannel board, I thought, none of the salesmen seemed convinced. An aggregate we are, a society of cells by the trillions, each distinct yet only what they are in relation to all others, each wired with a will to persist. Conatus, Spinoza called it, life leaning toward being more than it is. An acquisitive cooperation, guided by neurons, governs the whole, and I becomes. This poem opens up with a quote from Karl Marx. Quote, a being that does not have its nature outside itself is not a natural being and plays no part in the system of nature." End quote. But what lies outside us now? Nothing but a bank too big to fail, a gullet grown too fond of fear, its pleasure derived from the hedge it bets against.
West wind bends palm fronds east, a simple ease in April. Watch her twirl on the grass, imagining the princess she longs to be. How many girls does Disney do this to? These myths commerce creates, a depth that belies the surface we return to, demand for things, the brand she'll bear, bear all her life. One saw a mirage of fresh water, the other of salt water. Question is, would the first hate thirst more? Hawk flew low over the hawk flew low along the horizon, rose up, circled high and dove for prey, came up with nothing but a rat's shadow. No illusion except at the heart of things, the sutra says. What else is? A pulse of neurons, this autobiographical eye, compiled by sentience, wound around silence slowly derived from an absent inner light, shines brighter for not being what it's rumored to be, a balanced portfolio broadly allocated across select sectors of the, the mind slash market shares the burden of blame, amortized and depreciated each April 15th. Two more. The single, set not against, but beside the multiple, each an echo of each, teaching her how such a sound could be a voice first heard here, then there, by throwing itself to the cliff across the canyon and back with time between, means one voice or two, a reply or a repetition. Yes. And the last point. No Buddha, no beings, no Buddha. And if all questions were answered, what would be left to know? Maybe nothing but the sound of gata gata paragata parasangata bodhisvaha. Who chants that over and over? The ocean, its tongues, these waves, words make signs of another shore. No being, no Buddha, no being. Thank you.
All right, that's enough talking and stretching. Having <laughs> <laughs> too much fun, we might lose it. Yeah. Okay, you can talk and stretch. <laughs> by thanking Ray for making the reading possible and thank you to everyone for coming out today. I also want to thank the special collections folks, Rob and Linda, for uh, a delightful afternoon. Paul and I were able to spend some time looking at the George Oppen papers. Just, it's a remarkable collection and really an inspiring thing to do. I'm going to read to you from several different books and we'll get to the um, kind of Improvisational shape writing will be the latter part of the reading, and that's. I'm assuming that you can read. I just want you to um, see the shapes of some of the particular stanzaic constructions. But it's really we're doing this mainly for the the notebook pages, and you'll see why when when those begin to occur. I also want to just say a couple of things. The first book I'll read from is the New Spirit, which is a beautifully designed book that that Paul made available through Singing Horse Press. Now, poets, we're very skilled business people. <laughs> and so what Paul and I forgot to bring were copies of my books. <laughs> so, but the books are lovely, and, and you can look at them. And Paul lives in San Diego, so we'll get them to you. So if you want copies. So I brought... I, I Singinghorsepress.com. Yeah, sing, and then I also did bring portions. So, uh, and Paul has several of his books available here, which we remember somehow. So... Uh, <laughs> But anyway, let me read you a couple of sections from The New Spirit. And this is poem number three. You could tune it some other way, apparent to rhythmic conviction, insistent as you have it as it manifests itself, filtered breeze, crisp circle, these sudden elements sent as breath, said silently or as actually spoken. What can be heard, what can be now attended to, hear this, the exact metaphysics of your historical moment of listening. What does not change is the will or disposition to listen. What does change is which rhythms, which combinations of sounds, what music one in his or her time is inclined to listen to. Perhaps close listening, but more exactly beckoned listening, audition, summon, from the crisscross of your historical circumstance. To Logopia, please stop sermon, cross-cut bright elements, fiery filaments shine, Vishnu, Lishma, Corazon, bright strive, honk, talk, tongues unclenched to eloquent extension, a pirouette, a parachute for you, a piece of parchment, an arrowhead, a tool for breaking up compelled incorporation to speak of something else enabled by shaping breath to turn. And I apologize in advance, the next poem requires a little bit of singing. <laughs> Three little words, Teshuva turned toward you no more, dramatic than this car moving in, 
and out of shadows. I love you and I have chosen wrong, live with it. Three little words when the saints, when something great bags and train in that number, turn and turn, felt a sharp turn at 49, sun at sea lab, cut the squid open, found the ink sack, slowly we learn to work alone and with each other. Three little words, Baruch Atah Adonai, love what is and where you are, take dictation or quit altogether, user pays connection fee, drove south thinking about this or that lush southern sound. Gateway, I'm here, Shema Yisrael Adonai, three words sweet, here, O Israel, versus nervous bebop, soul attentive to its own amusements. Play it loud, Lord our God, through whatever horn, breathe and shape, heavenly blue legacy, golden fall light, drove me down the river delta, ghostly sacks tilted back, succession then when the saints. Next, I want to read to you some poems from book Portions from Lavender Inc., a very uh, a, a tiny book. In terms of All of the poems you'll see are essentially in this invented form. And that's essentially the way I've worked for about the last 25 plus years is in a series of invented forms. Uh, it often takes a while to come up with one that's, that seems pleasing or engaging enough. And I think of them as almost like lenses through which one comes to know certain elements of a, a world and language. Um, and in, in the case of the Portions poems, it's working with a mystical Hebrew, no, the number 18, which again is the Hebrew letters also spell out the word life, high, but also the letters add up to the number 18. So you have three 18s in here, and all of the poems are of, of this 54 word length. Um, and a lot of other things start to enter into that. The, there are 54 portions of the Torah read throughout the year. In the midst of writing this, I was eating at a restaurant called The Waysider and came out and there's a place called Double Portion Baptist Church, in which the song, Jesus is my portion. And I swear, a Flannery O'Connor moment, a person came walking out on one leg. <laughs> so there are a whole wave of different elements of portions that come to play. I wanted to read first to you because I started out, I, I grew up in San Jose, went to school in Palo Alto, and was a math major drifting through pre-med and was taking an early American literature class from Al Jelpe, and he required us to attend a poetry reading. This was the fall of 1969, and I had never been to a reading and didn't know what to expect. And the two readers were Robert Duncan and Denise Levertov. It was, it was quite a reading. He is bruised. We hold them dear as ornament, given over to a music others manage to ignore. He is bruised, loyal to an invisible, almost comic, dare we say, Order compelled then, we may say, ordered light foot strides, first memorable instance of magic, chanting bid, bidding to abide with, to be among. Next one would help if you hear it with a little bit of a Yiddish accent in the title. Avant, avant, I want, and if you, I am becoming my father's dying body, okra, tomatoes, sweet corn, sunflower, 
my son or neighbor says, you look just like your father. Beans, field peas, new potatoes, today's purchase or to gain purchase, terror of bare relation. Just now, being here, it of course slips away. Study. Set it, set, set upon stutter, summon, step, step up, cushion, cuss, percussive, squawk, go back, abash, block, bleak, block it, stop it, step it up, let whatever, over, ever, sever, severe, swerve, cut, back, pinch, punch, push, perch, push, toward, pleading, crash, pull, compel, clutch, serve, send, rescind, turn, face, return, study, technique, steady. Probably quite a few of us here have a fondness or had a fondness for Robert Creeley's poetry, and this is one written for in memory of uh, Robert Creeley. <coughs> you. So the old cabin leans sit up, I said, as if to someone. I said it to you. I always do. If there were no one else, if there were only you, I would say, sit up and think someone heard such is my sense. The old cabin leans, what is never passes away. Here. I don't think my particular life merits extended meditation. You who read these poems, please know it is the place of these words we are given to know. Here we are, in a peculiar way, given permission to be, can enter sometimes this resounding space where thinking sings, sacred place, the moment's measured being. So increasingly, over the last Ten years, what I've begun to do is, is work with the poem as kind of a starting point for various kinds of collaborations. In this case, the poems from Portions, a former student of James Pock Nichols, who became a visual artist, and we were able to collaborate on a series of poem paintings. So this is a, a, a version. And he did very elaborate poem paintings. These are uh, encaustics he developed. Very intriguing self-taught artist who unfortunately died in his early 30s of a seizure. Um, built up kind of the ground of these. We'll begin with old maps and newspaper materials painted over. He used uh, just an old soldering iron to melt some of the wax and create the encaustic effect and all. This is a concluding poem of portions. House, pad, pod, site, preparing a place a launching pad, a landing site, small birds, chickadees, finches, sparrows, right out Arctic wind, bobbing on suspended birdhouses hung from pine branches, small words as on an ever-moving sea, we live and breathe riding upon this language house, a moving place that feeds and carries. So the poems of portions, 
for those of you who are early into your writing life, a kind of a scary thing about portions. I work with a particular form until I feel I've kind of exhausted the learning experience from that form. And when it becomes a bit automatic or starts to feel self-imitative, then I know it's time to abandon that particular form and, and come up with something else. At the end of, uh, and I, the, I'm a slow learner, so portions I wrote in that form exclusively for six and a half years, nothing else. And by the end of that time, I had really gotten very sick of fixed form. So I determined that the next thing that I was going to do, whatever the new kind of parameters would be, that they would have much more flexibility involved and that that would be an inherent principle. So I found that over the years, it, it seems to me that what, what poets do is, in terms of our social being is we act out a kind of, we act out a Jewish joke of sorts, and that is, uh, what do you have if you have two Jews, three temples? Or a, a Jew is stranded on a desert island, what does he do? He builds one temple that he'll attend, and one that he absolutely won't set foot in. <laughs> so poets uh, quarrel over the smallest significant differences in, and create a great sense of um, animosity. But there is, I did, I finally discovered one thing that poets have in common, and that is poets love notebooks. Absolutely love notebooks. So I developed a really radical idea about the notebooks I've been collecting over the years. I decided to take the next step, and that was to write in them. Because <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm talking about. You find a really beautiful notebook. I mean, here's, this one scared the shit out of it. It took me years to work up the, the nerve to write in this notebook. Uh, but I thought, what the hell? So, so I started to learn this. And I developed, I'm always working with some kind of weird metric. So I've been, as you could tell from House, I'm a reader, I was a, I've always been a reader of Heidegger, and some people find that a problem, but what I'd never read was his big book, Being in Time. And so if, as you get older, you realize that your reading is a finite experience, and there are only a certain number of books you're gonna read. So I thought, okay, read the big book, and I'll start writing in these notebooks, and as long, and the notebooks are all very different in size, shape, and texture. And so as long as it took me to read Being in Time, that was gonna be the project. Took me two and a half years, and that carried me through ten notebooks. And I also, I sincerely, I do not recommend the book. <laughs> but I was not uh, the project. At the sixth book, I was working with an animation artist, and we worked on a worked long and hard on a project over a year, and came up with a ninety-second film. It's kind of it's a lot of work for ninety seconds. But what what Jane Ann taught me are different ways to see the page. And about the sixth or seventh notebook, I started doing what you'll see is, is a more radical form of improvisational shape writing. And so notebooks 11 through 20 involved a reading of various books by Levinas. And I'm right now in the 26th notebook, and I've been reading Merleau-Ponty. So you'll find a lot of quoted material here and there. Uh, Paul, again, did a beautiful book, uh, N18. And so that's really the first available. You find in magazines different examples of these. But this is the first real collection of an entire notebook, so N18 complete. Um, and it was difficult, right? It was not, yeah. <laughs> it's difficult because I'm using three different kinds of ink, and so it gets really hard to get the registration correct. But I'll give you just a little bit of a sampling of what's happening. Also, again, I should indicate, what I'm about to do is not, in my opinion, is not the most effective way to read these pages. It's really fun if we'd have time to rehearse, create ways that, in fact, you become the voices and simulate the shape on the page, doesn't have to be this voice. The poems are not, often not my voice. There are other voices, and, but you'll see that as I go through a few of these. Every word and its exact placement. So you hear them a different way depending on where they appear. 
yeah. <laughs> a page a day keeps the doctor away. Now, that one gets really interesting. Well, I have a juvenile sense of humor. <laughs> grandparents are all Russian Jews. English, English was about their fourth language, and so I, my excuse is that I like their sense of humor, which is like this. Um, but I'm working with some Chinese translators on selected poems. So I met with my China translator, and she said, oh, I like that one. I said, would you, you understand? I said, oh, yeah. But there's, I, I'm convinced that's a page that's untranslatable, in fact. There are too many shifts and registers for it to be possible as a translation. So funny, simple, sophomoric, impossible to translate. If you stare at the wall, the same wall every morning, and practice your breathing, you will come to see how interesting and varied the wall is. In my case, simple sheetrock painted beige. You will see the changing angles, texture, and intensity of the seasonal light, the imperfections and shadowy tones of the wall itself. Perhaps you will orient yourself by means of a slightly upraised dot barely visible, which you might imagine to be the face of God, or you may simply discover that if you stare at a spot intently, it will disappear, or you may learn that the wall itself is a great and generative emptiness, a doorway made solid by praying in silent wailing. And honestly, when you pick this up, there, there's not a right place to begin, per se. That's part of the, I think, pleasure and intimacy that you have with a handwritten page. It really throws off where to begin and end. A prior dialogue sustains the ego. The relationship with the other precedes the auto-affection of certainty to which one always tries to reduce communication. Communication is an adventure of subjectivity. One way is a spiritual life defined by dogma, learning what to say and saying it. And there is something less definite, too grandiose if you call it a journey, unless journey at root is understood as an ever-differing experiencing of a day. That is where Thoreau excels, throwing himself into the hard fact of each observable moment in its flat, non-symbolic existence. That is the scimitar that fact is. The reverting of thematization into anarchy. And this is the last page of N18. If on a winter's day a reader if years from now, or if suddenly now in a morning's clarifying light, if prologue or prelude to whatever love might come your way, if you and I are turning the page together, if verse itself is a version of turning and returning together, of hanging on through the tightest turns, if on a winter's day, if this day riding together we arrive, if together we pause to take a reading, may we hear as given guide, as prelude, that ever word onward. Again, the, the books themselves, the shape, another thing that I should just <coughs> confess also about the notebook writing 
the improvisational or, or calligraphic sense of it comes from, the, I don't do any drafts and I don't do any revisions of the pages, which mean, it means quite admittedly some of them are, are crappy and you may have already seen examples of such. But, and so they don't, they, they vary in, in complexity and intensity. So rather than begin, as what some of my earlier poetry did, it began with certain qualities of music or sound that led the poem. Here more often, I'm seeing a shape and write to fulfill the shape. And so that's kind of how it begins. But in each instance, kind of deliberately not knowing where I'm going when I get started. I have given you to write. Spirit is word. It is up to you how much of the immeasurable becomes reality for you. The relationship with the infinite is not a knowledge but a proximity, preserving the excessiveness of the uncontainable, which grazes the surface. <coughs> so there is an end, but a new wisdom, a new rationality begins, a new notion of spirit. Listen to the voice and write exactly what it says. You might have many different impressions or caricatures of Alabama and what's possible for us there or not, but one of the really intriguing relationships that's developed over time, University of Alabama has a strong and ongoing relationship with Cuba. And if you know our two senators, you think, how the hell does that happen? That's a later conversation if you're interested. But it has happened. So we've had students living in Cuba spring semester for the last five years. And I've been able to take several trips and get to know a range of poets. Alabama Press will be publishing three Cuban poets over the next couple of years. Absolutely fascinating, intriguing place. Consciousness, which already allows itself to be forgotten for the benefit of present entities, it withdraws itself from appearance to make room for them. Somos juntos, united in our differences. Sentir es pensar, si, pensar es sentir. Pensar es sentir, si, sentir es pensar. Dentro de las palabras. The idea of God and even the enigma of the word God, which we find fallen into our midst without our knowing whence or how, and already circulating. We have recourse to the notion of a horizontal religion remaining on the earth of human beings. Melody of the recurring phrase. Why is there saying? It is a spirituality granted to the founding firmness of the earth listening post. Next. So again, some of the, there's a really interesting group of graphic designers in Southeast Alabama called Standard Deluxe. And this is a little kind of possum guy on the cover. So obviously when you write, when the notebook becomes this size, then different, it's, I think of the notebook as a sort of dance partner. It has a lot to say with what's possible. It changes the nature of, of what what happens. So let's next. I kind of am tempted to read that one. I'm a big sci-fi fan. This is this has this. Yeah, there's a great science fiction writer in La Jolla in San Diego. Vigny uh, is his last name. And it's, it's just a great, great book that's set basically in the Dr. Seuss library is the central location for it. Rainbow's End, great book. 
then they contact us, or that may be what this language is, and our power to re-enter into ourselves is exactly measured by a power to leave ourselves, but which coming second reflects back to it only its own light. And then I'll finish up with just a few pages from the current notebook that I'm writing in. This is the, the 26th, and there's a great book arts program at Alabama, and so anytime they start selling notebooks, I'm a real sucker for the book sales. So I'll read you a few of the opening pages, maybe a couple later ones as well, from the current notebook. Who kept us alive, we go into the light. This network of relationships investing the texture of everyday social life with the numinous aspect of the sacred. Without you, there can be no book, music, only if you hear it, poem resounding within you. The book and I, we need your help. Skip it. Where have you been? I've been here waiting for you. Rather, it is to seek what it, in fact, is for us prior to every thematization, insofar as we are all one single light. So again, I'm just trying to give you a shape. These are consecutive pages, so you begin to get a sense of the variety. Next. The relation to the world, such as it tirelessly announces itself within us, is not something that analysis might clarify. Philosophy can simply place it before our eyes and invite us to take notice. And if we think that all your thoughts are true, to music, the tropism toward which the soul extends, think that all your thoughts are true. Next. Next. So the same animation artist that I work with, Jane Ann, said about the notebooks, she said, you know, you can really understand these without reading them. I hope that's not the case, but she, I think there, she also has a point. Let us not make understandable what is not. The object of attention itself must still be brought to light. What about now? To leave poetry without leaving it is what I have done, or in fact, it is what I am doing through what is at hand, making a poetry that takes the shape of something that never was a poem. This is the silent language perception speaks to us. It is now. Next. 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 See, every now and then there's one that looks just like a poem. <laughs> All unapparent as nothing is, and so to say, another day, a day to hold as we are held, invisible time, a place to be, a day at a time, held by nothing, 
embodies quiet rhythm here. Next. 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 Nothing is more difficult than knowing precisely what we see, suspended in space, moving still in time. Next. Next. If you see one you want me to read, just say read it. This one and one other. So that was and is sleep may safely graze. She told me, you wake up into it, the brain most active and energized in sleep. Perhaps in the future I will similarly misjudge the present that I'm currently living. A quiet humming. Clarity begins at home when you wake up early in the morning. Moreover, vision itself varies from one moment to the next according to the degree of fatigue. Next. Thank you. It's kind of fun to hear other people read it because they construct it differently. And as I said, it's really more satisfying to have multiple voices, and sometimes multiple voices simultaneously. Hard to do. Yeah. You said you don't revise the shapes. Does that mean you don't revise the words either? I don't do any revision on it. I just write it. I don't know if it's cool. Again, my favorite philosopher is a golfer, Ben Hogan. He used to say what he noticed is the more he practiced, the luckier he got. And so what I'm advocating is, not, is after maybe 30 or 40 years of, of lots of revision and practicing, and I'm really not, and then the editing comes in saying, note it, sometimes whole books or pages, they're not all, they're not all good. It's just, it's a permission to write it, but it may not work out. So do you tear some pages out of the notebook? Never, you never. Never torn a page out. And you saw one or two, and I get annoyed when I make an error, but then I've learned that the, that the error might be quite interesting as well. You see a few of things where I just fucked up. So. <laughs> Messed up. I'd like to ask one question each, if I may. Um, thank you both for being here today. And I would like to ask about the E team. When when you're actually doing your work and deciding what it is you want to put into your poetry, um, did you find that you you already knew what was going into your poem because you said that you had you had already determined uh, the the meter and yeah well so those are two different books things? 
the, um, the, the stuff I read is, is, wasn't derived from the I Ching at all. That's the book over there called Book of Changes. But no, I didn't know what, no, what was going to be in there. I mean, part of the using the I Ching is, is to allow another voice in, and in, in one sense, to allow luck to come into it. Um, and if you've read any of the I Ching, you know that it's, it's wonderfully vague. So that you can go pretty much, it's, it's kind of a Rorschach test, I think, really, in language. And, and you can go where you want. It's, it's, it's odd how often um, it syncs up with where you are. So there, it's just, it was a way of having an element of chance in to the, to the writing process. Just like Hank says with, you know, writing using quotations or something. I think it's, it's really important in the writing process to bring other voices in. And let, let somebody else participate, you know, in in the dialogue. Poetry, I think, should be a dialogue as much as possible. Thank you. Yeah. And I would like to ask you, how do you know when you've got it right? <laughs> I mean, how how are you satisfied People with clap. your poem? <laughs> yeah. yeah, there was no applause to this. I know there was no, <laughs> no. You don't. You don't know. I mean, I used. To, I remember early on into reading I read the Paris Review interviews with T. S. Eliot, and he was talking about how. He never knew if he'd written a decent poem. I was like, you're bullshitting me. You, wrote the, you probably thought that Proof Rock was pretty good or The Wasteland was okay. But no, I think you, you don't, at some level, you don't know. You don't know. And that sometimes you like, do you think this is a good poem? Well, I don't. I can answer whether I find the poem exciting or whether it's stimulating or nourishing to me, but that's totally different than its context or use. And so I, don't, I really don't know and probably the view changes over time. Do we tend to like what we've just written inordinately? So you wouldn't, you wouldn't regard any of your poems as good or bad, you would regard them as energetic or thoughtful or? Well, it depends on what frame of mind you caught me in. I would probably <laughs> say, I would, I think certain ones are pretty good and, and would say so, but the, the list might change some are bad. And, the list would probably change at different times of asking the question. There are certain ones that I think kind of stick. I'm, re I'm returning to the new spirit. I'm, I'm okay with that one. Thank you. There's numbers at the end of some of your phrases, sometimes with standard numbers, sometimes the Roman numerals. Is there a reason for that? Or what yeah, I'm, I'm trying to be legit with you all in terms of what's quotation. So, in, for example, in N18 at the back, I'll, I'll identify sources. And so the page numbers will be from those. So if you see a page number, it's Levinas, uh, otherwise than being, or you'll have a specific location for it. And then occasionally, if I'm smuggling in some other piece of writing, I'll try to put a little bit of something in. There's a writer, Aiden Stein Saltz, who occasionally figures into what I'm doing. And so I'll, I'll try to try to give you a clue. And help me to remember, too, because otherwise I won't know. And I've been doing that for a long time. This is. Some, I wrote in the mid-80s, the first kind of, again, the person who's really important to a lot of this writing for me was David Anton, and David's writing, who's again an absolute San Diego treasure. Uh, David started writing about collage as the fundamental principle of 20th century art. And so I tried to, the first collage poem that I did, every other section is a verbatim quotation from the Alabama Legal Code, which is absolutely fascinating reading, and really swamped anything that I could write. So I deliberately wrote down in my sections to maintain the interest and try to speak through the legal code. So I've been doing this for a good, good long while of incorporating quoted material. That's, that's what they would call a conceptual poem now, and you could be in that <laughs> conceptual poetry anthology. Not that heavy. 
No, but yeah, the, it is both, I would say, in some ways. Kind of both. I have another question just yeah. about the uh, shape poetry. So um, I noticed you, you said that like you don't pay as much attention to sonics, but I noticed some sonics when I was hearing the uh, shape poetry. I was wondering if, if that is included, like Absolutely. if that's what you intended. And yes. secondly, how do you guide, or how do you write sonics such that if, if there's so many different readings of this poem, how do you make the sonics apparent if someone reads it a different way from another person? Well, the same issue comes up in a lot of interesting experimental music. I work with a jazz musician, and we'd use these as scores and do everything from where the music is kind of imitating the, sound, the rhythm of the language to stuff where it's just the language is an opening phrase and the music goes somewhere else. Um, I'm glad you said what you said about sound. I don't think I've abandoned it at all, actually. I think it's inherent and in, it's ingrained in the way I write and that there is a, a musicality to it that I hope is apparent, even though I'm, I wrote that poem where I'm talking about a sense of leaving poetry and writing poetry this way. I'm, I'm just pushing against that. I don't think that's really true, what I said there. I think that it's not, not exactly so. Then the, what you're saying, so there's certain notations for experimental music that allow multiple ways of being played or articulated. And so that's fine. The different readings would articulate different elements of the sound there. And there's not a, I don't think there's a fixed one that has to be a certain way. I would just welcome those. Um, as far as the, the shape on the page, did the thought ever enter your mind when you're writing these poems that I'm going to resist interpretation or I want to encourage interpretation? Does that ever go through your mind? Not at all. <laughs> just write. And then what's weird with these poems is that when I return, I'm more of a reader of these poems than almost anything I've written. When I come back, literally, I can look at something I wrote two weeks ago and say, huh, <laughs> I wrote that. Did I really write this? My handwriting. And so I become more of a reader in the sense you're kind of describing. But there's not a sense of conscious intention or thematized intention going on. You don't, you find as, as you write longer, you don't have to worry about that. It's, already, it's there. It's just there. Probably too much. Um, Paul, so in your in your recent work, you you seem to use um, a certain number of words per line, mm -hmm. and uh, I wonder how you started doing that, and because I think it's been going on for a while, right? And so, how, what you get from that particular formality? Um, so that that project's pretty much three years. Mm -hmm. I started in January of, of twenty eleven. Um, you know, I think the the what I was really interested in is just really, again, experimenting with line length. I'm, I'm really interested in what, what, what a short line poem can do and what happens when you do a long line poem, and especially because you know, it's, it's, it's pretty philosophical poetry. What, 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 what can you do with nine words that actually, you know, for the beginning and ending section, that actually has some, I hope, some kind of a punch to it? And then what happens when you have the ability to stretch out? Do you become verbose? You know, and trying, to, trying not to do that but I, I think the real, the real thing was to try to make lines that were really lines rather than just, okay, this poem has to have this number of words, go ahead and fill them in. I really wanted them to be lines. So I think that that was the real deep impulse behind that formal choice was to, to play around with line lengths. Because I'm, I'm kind of like you in the sense that my, my natural line is short. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I, I don't write many long line poems and I wanted something to kind of take me in that direction. So I kind of start off with baby steps, and then by the, the nine ones, I'm actually getting these poems that actually look like 
a grown-up brother. <laughs> so, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think numbers are really, really. The, you know, the odd thing that that book, the the idea for the form came out of an attempt to read Hegel's um, Science of Logic, which fortunately failed. I didn't. <laughs> if you ever want to really put yourself to sleep, get Hegel's Science of Logic, he'll do it. But his, I, I got maybe 100 pages into it, but I got fascinated with this table of contents. Because, you know, anybody that knows much about Hegel knows everything goes in threes, you know, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. And his whole table of contents in this whole book was organized that way. It was so, you know, interesting and anal, but you read the, every, every section has 27, 9, it's just the whole thing is built that way. And I thought, well, that's almost maniacal enough for me to do. <laughs> or it just sounded, it just was, I was fascinated with that kind of order. And you both seem to incorporate a lot of quotes from philosophy, as well as sometimes uh, religion of various sorts. And uh, that just seems really um, interwoven all throughout. Have you always used, have you always done that? Use the source text kind of? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was a philosophy major as an undergraduate. And I really came to poetry through philosophy, and particularly through when I started to read Eastern philosophy, because one of the things that I think is amazing in Eastern philosophy is they don't have this divide between philosophy and poetry. There's no Plato that came along and said, you're out of the city, you poets, you're, you're kicked out. Most of it, if you read the Tao Te Ching or you read a lot of the Buddha sutras, they're in verse. They don't make this distinction, and that's, that's what I wanted to explore in all my work, is breaking down the distinction between poetry and philosophy, because they're they're kind of, in, in a way, it mirrors this Western distinction we have between the mind and the body. Yeah. You know, the reason Hegel didn't like poetry was because it, it, it engaged the body. I mean, if you read Hegel's aesthetic, he thinks music's okay, but that's too sensuous. Poetry's okay because it's kind of gotten rid of it. Philosophy's the best because it's, it's the, the prose of the world, he called it, and the body isn't involved at all. And I'm not interested in philosophy or anything that doesn't have the body involved in it. And poetry involves the body because of the sound, you know, the vibrational sound. And again, with a lot of Eastern thought and chants and mantras, there are vibrations that are ideas, they're conceptual vibrations. So, yeah, it's always been. been. And, and that's really a passion that I think we share. And it's caught you exactly right. It's threaded through. I, I'm not a student. I, I took one philosophy class and realized I wasn't, I was not skilled in that domain of study. But I really have acquired a taste, and I would urge you all to consider this for yourselves as well. I love reading things that exceed my understanding. And philosophy, absolutely, it's a joyous experience in that domain. I'm still kind of a sucker for the good sentence. I mean, I'm, I admire Emerson's prose. I mean, the guy can't write a paragraph to save his life, but the you're going to find these explosively wonderful sentences. And that's kind of what I'm in it for, which is also a pretty decent training to read more innovative and experimental poetry that in some way is alluding how you understand things. A couple of things. On this number that you were talking about, words at line, word <coughs> count. It's a new book out by a really fine critic named Brian Reed called Nobody's Business. It's a really good critical study. He's a really smart writer. But he writes a whole, par a whole chapter where he's talking about, it seems like everybody right now is working on projects that have these kind of menus or specifications. It kind of appalled me and scared me a little bit and, and because it, it seems like maybe we're trying in an attempt, a belated attempt to gain respectability, we're imitating scientists in some ways. That, yes, I have. I'm working on. A, I'm, not, I'm not writing poems. I'm working on a project, and my project will last for this amount of time. And it has these specifications. And, I mean, it kind of sounds like we're making a green car or something. It's, it's an odd 
So it, it takes me a bit. I'm thinking about what Brian's saying in that. Other. I wanted to say one concluding thing, and again, this was a real dream to have an opportunity to come back to San Diego and read, and especially to read with Paul, that what Ray said is true. Paul is a hidden treasure here. There are hidden treasures in poetry. It's a tenuous, odd activity, and it takes a certain stubbornness, perseverance, and going against the flow of, of a business-oriented, commodified society. So the other thing I find just heroic is what Paul has been able to do with Singing Horse Press. And these, these, these efforts um, matter, and so I appreciate you all being here and, and seeing some of the product of, of that labor. It's, it's a tenuous and, and exciting, rich world. I agree. Thank you for coming. Thanks. Thank you.